Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is sponsored by Bivens Point. All of us with older parents or grandparents have probably spent the past few months thinking about their health more than ever before. As for me, I'm really glad my parents and in-laws were able to get vaccinated recently. Someday, all of us may find ourselves in a position where we have to make decisions about health care, about rehab or nursing care for these older family members. When that time comes, turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. To learn more about this innovative wellness community, visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E. Today's guest is the Reverend E. Courtney Jones. Courtney is a former high school teacher who, last year, went through a pretty dramatic career shift when she joined the staff of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church as an ordained deacon in the Episcopal Diocese of Northwest Texas. This was the culmination of a long and fascinating journey toward ministry and of self-discovery for Courtney. And personally, I just find her story super interesting, and I think you will too. I've known Courtney since we were both Bible nerds who grew up in the same church, and it was so much fun to sit down with her for this interview. So here's Courtney Jones. Courtney Jones, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I find that I've started a lot of years talking to someone in the clergy, um, and I don't know if that's just a, a personal thing. I, I like to, to check in with, <laughs> with ministers before starting a new year, but uh, I'm, I'm honored to talk to you today. I'm excited to talk to you. I want to start the same way I start with everyone else and just ask your Amarillo story. How did you end up living here? Well, I kind of have two Amarillo stories. I'm a twice Amarilloan. That's kind of okay. how I feel about it. I um, grew up here. My parents moved here after my dad graduated from law school, and they moved here because we're like fourth-generation panhandle people. Okay. My um, grandmother's grandparents at some point escaped from Oklahoma and moved to the Texas panhandle. Okay. And so, uh, so my dad was born in Spearman. Way Spearman's. back then. Yeah, way back. My dad was born in Spearman, and when he wanted to start his professional career, he thought that Amarillo was going to be a good place to do that, and he did. And so my brother and I were both born here. They say if you've ever worn out a pair of shoes in Amarillo, you're going to come back. And so I think that's sort of what happened. But realistically, I left for college, went to Baylor. And then after Baylor, I moved to Austin. And I didn't think that I would come back to Amarillo. But about a decade into Austin, my now wife and I were getting a little tired of um, the traffic Mm-hmm. Traffic in Austin, it's just insane. Oh, and it's worse now than it was oh, for 10 sure. years ago. And it was very popular to move there. And, you know, it was just, we're kind of starting to get a feeling that we'd like to live somewhere smaller. And so we started to toy around with the idea of moving to, moving closer to one or the other of our families. And she has family in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and I have family here. Mm-hmm. And so we started applying for some jobs, and almost immediately she got a job um, at one of the refineries up here. Okay. And then like a week later, I got a job offer from Boys Ranch High School. And so things just sort of fell into place and we ended up moving to Amarillo and we've loved it. It was uh, 2012 when we moved okay. back. 
Do you remember as a kid, I, I should probably say, uh, just for disclosure, we've known each other since we were both kids. Um, right. I knew your family. Uh, we went to church together. I think your parents were my Sunday school teachers at some point. That seems legit. Um, so uh, we, we have more of a history than I do with most guests. Um, I, I want to talk about, you know, when you were a kid living here, did you ever have the thought about, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of Amarillo as soon as I can? Uh, like a lot of a lot of kids have, they they want to just pull that escape valve and and go away. I don't know that I was ever a long term thinker enough to think I'm going to get out and stay out. But I know that I definitely wanted to get out for college. Mm-hmm. So you know, I applied several places away, um, some of them very far away, and some of them in Texas. I ended up getting accepted to most of those places. And ended up going to Baylor mostly because everybody in my family had gone to Baylor and I had a partial scholarship there. And so it made it an attractive option. What was the career plan at that point? Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) So I wasn't really sure when I went to college what I wanted to do. I was one of those teens that probably just drive their parents absolutely insane. You know, I'm not sure where I'm going to go to college. I'll just apply all these places Mm -hmm. and then just like throw a dart at the wall and whichever pennant it gets stuck in, that's where I'll go. But um I kind of figured I would do pre-med stuff because I knew I wanted to help people. And at at some point in my life, um, seventh grade, actually, I really felt like I was called to do some sort of ministry. But that kind of, I mean, to our youth minister's credit, um, he really hooked me up with um, getting to serve in the children's ministry Mm -hmm. and getting to uh, do some things with the youth ministry that were kind of intern related deals and write some curriculum for the kids and, you know, really kind of dig into that idea. But it never really resonated with me, um, this whole children's ministry thing. And I felt like that was kind of the only option for a woman at yeah, the time. Yeah, um, And You're really, pushed towards children's ministry because yeah. that's kind of the only place that it's at, okay at for... At that time, in, in that era, that was sort of the way to go. And I never really felt particularly called to that. So I just kind of shelved that idea. And so pre-med was the, was the major. Um, I have a lot, a lot of anatomy and physiology classes. My major is uh, biology with a human physiology emphasis. So did you, after getting that degree, did you move into education? I mean, did, did you, well, what happened to the, the <laughs> med part of the pre-med? <laughs> it turns out that um, my senior year of college, I learned that I cannot watch someone get stitches. I can't do it. I will pass out every single time. In fact, now, like if people even just show me their stitches, which I shouldn't admit in something that's going to go out over, you know, a lot of people. People will be coming to you. Now people will come and show me their stitches and and I'll fall out. Um, But no, I pass out, like even just looking at stitches. And that's pretty basic medical stuff. I know. And it's like you have to be able to do stitches to go into medicine. So I figured that wasn't going to work. And then had another one of those sort of listless periods that probably drove my parents insane for, you know, the last six months or so of college through that summer. And then there was a shortage, a teacher shortage. And basically they were saying, anyone with a science degree, you can come be a teacher. Hmm. And so my mom was like, hey, you can get your teaching certificate online. Just go, like, get a job, please. And so I did. I went and got a teaching job in Austin. And... It was a Title I school. 
It was super rough for the first couple of years because I really didn't have any education background. But I got my teaching certificate online that way while I taught. And I really enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed the teenagers. I enjoyed the teaching process. And I found that, you know, I, I liked it. I was good at it. I felt like I was in the right place at the right time, that I had sort of fallen into the right thing. Once you got back to Amarillo and, and got the job at Boys Ranch, have you continued doing that? I mean, is that still something, that, that teaching aspect of, of your work that still feels like a big part of who you are? Oh, yeah. You know, I've got to say that Boys Ranch High School has got to be the best school in the Texas Panhandle. Um, I really believe that because they are so good about training their teachers, and they're so good about um, taking a student that has huge gaps in their education and filling those gaps and getting them to graduate on time. So it was great working there. Um, I especially love the kids at Boys Ranch. Uh, the one thing I missed about that I've missed in my new gig, I just changed jobs this summer. Okay. And if you're going to change jobs, um, the middle of a pandemic probably isn't the best time, but it was sort of timely in this way. But the thing I've missed is the sound. Like there's just so much noise yeah. in a high school. But so many of the skills that teachers have, I think, are transferable to other things. You know, um, I think you should take really good care of your teachers and really like help the teachers in your community or they are going to come and take your jobs hmm. because there's just so many skills. Because they're competent and they've yeah, got so much I competence. Mean, you in. get used to dealing with people and you get used to doing, you know, some managerial type work and there's some accounting involved. And so basically, you're, you're, I feel like teachers have a lot of transferable skills that people don't think about. Hmm. So. That's, that's interesting to think about. I find that to be true, that even if you're a science teacher, your skill set is not just science. Like, there's, there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with helping students achieve oh, yeah. what they achieve in the classroom. So I want to talk about the job that you do now, but I, I don't want to jump that far ahead given your past because, you know, there's a lot of it that interests me. Um, having known you as a kid... Uh, knowing that you came from a very conservative religious background, the same one that I grew up in, to now being in the Episcopal Church, an open and affirming congregation. You mentioned that you were married. Um, you spent a lot of time in Austin, and then you moved to Amarillo. Like, there's a lot of a lot of transition, a lot of change in that. I wonder if you could walk me through some of those personal aspects of it, not just the religious side, but like realize who you were after getting out of Amarillo or out of maybe the environment that you grew up in? Oh, sure. You know, I, I kind of always had some inklings that I was not like the other girls that I grew up around. And I don't know that I could really put words to that until I went to college. Hmm. And so I didn't really come out per se until I was around 19 years old. And I really didn't come out to colleagues, et cetera, until I moved to Amarillo, which really? is sort of ironic. Um, we were never fully out at work or in all aspects of our lives until we moved here. Was there that fresh start kind of feeling? Yeah. That renewal? You know, and, and really, honestly, um, the people here are sort of live and let live. And so it was kind of a, you know, we, we had the fresh start, but also we found that it wasn't nearly as scary as we thought it was going to See, be. I think a lot here. of people would feel like it's the opposite, going from Austin to uh, Amarillo. Right, right. That's interesting to hear you say that. Well, you know, you have to keep in mind that um, until just very recently, and I don't remember which year, but it's been in the past five or so, uh, you could be fired for, you know, being same-sex oriented. And so that, I mean, it's 
wasn't federally protected until very, very recently. True. So being closeted, I guess you would say, at work was not not unheard of. Okay. In college, um, you know, unfortunately, when I came out, I got kicked out of my church. And so that... The church you were going to at Baylor. That's right. And I joined a church that um, some of our some of our folks that we had gone to church with as kids, they had been part of a like a church in Waco that was part of a main denomination, like part of a, a big denomination. But this particular church had just formed when I joined it. It was kind of like um, kind of like a cell had gotten really large and then divided. Okay. And one of them maintained a denominational affiliation and the other one didn't. There's that and biology so, background yeah, coming yeah. into your metaphors. <laughs> so I was in the one that didn't. And it was a little more... Um, I don't know, now that I look back on it as an adult, I'm like, it was a little more dangerous because hmm. it was a little bit more personality-driven and didn't quite have the oversight that maybe some of the places, you know, some of your more established churches, right? right? And so <laughs> there was a... All that came out was that I had a crush on one of the girls in our small group. Wow. And for this, there was like a three-hour like against my will exorcism attempt. And like for real exorcism. Yes, like a for real exorcism attempt, like people holding me down, frightening. But like I trusted these people and I believed that they had a very deep connection with God. And so for me, one of the things that came out of that was like, I don't know what I do believe hmm. because nothing changed in that three hours of intense experience. Well, it sounds you know? like, Traumatic. It was very psychologically speaking, was, like sure. At, at that, you can time see in it as life. an exorcism, or you can see it as like an assault by your religious friends. I yeah, mean, you definitely could see it either way. Um, and you know, I think I've processed through a lot of that in adulthood and just kind of gone, "Wow, that was really, really weird." Hmm. You know. Um, but at the time, what came out of it immediately was they were like, "You know, hey, well, how are you feeling?" I'm like, "I don't feel any different." <laughs> Did it take? <laughs> and <laughs> they're like, "Well, okay, um, don't come back around." But all of the friends that I had in college were like, you know, church friends, basically. Cause well, and you were at Baylor. I was kind of a church I mean, nerd, you know? And Baylor, yeah, Baylor's a, like a Baptist school. So, you know, everybody's involved in some sort of church, or at least when I went there, it felt like everybody was involved in some sort of church thing. So it was like the thing to do is go find a church. So most of my friends were those folks. And so, you know, walking home from that, that night, I, I remember thinking, like, I don't know what I believe but I believe there is a God hmm. and kind of starting there and then spending like the next decade kind of adding things here and there in sort of a no guru, no teacher, no method um, to quote a Van Morrison album sort of way, just kind of kind of bouncing here and there and seeing what fit. So it was a pretty solid deconstruction of oh, your yeah. faith. All you had left was just that one foundation. Right. I believe in God. Yeah, Let's and I figure think, out the rest of it. I think that was because we were studying Descartes at the time in one of the anthropology classes I had to take. And so, you know, Descartes had his famous deconstruction and just got down to, I think, therefore I am. And I think my deconstruction was, okay, I believe there's a God. And I had always been kind of a church nerd, you know, like as a little kid, I loved those little felt things, you know, where you oh, put yeah. the Bible characters yeah. on the wall. And I loved the little, um, you know, the goldfish cracker snacks that we had at the tables and wood blocks and all the costumes. Like, I loved that stuff. I always enjoyed 
you know, being in the church. And I, I loved um, the church that I grew up in. I felt like they gave me a really great background in scripture. A lot of my friends went there. You know, it was a good, I feel like a good foundation. And so somewhere around 19, kind of not feeling like I belonged anywhere church-wise was really, um, man, I think it kind of messed me up for a while. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you talk about that found foundation. When you grow up in an environment like we grew up, that becomes part of who you are. And so it's not just like, I'm going to take off this one church shirt and put on a different shirt. It's like a part of your body. You know, you're, yeah. you're losing an arm or you're losing a leg when you oh, deconstruct yeah. that faith. I, I feel like there's sort of a sense, and I, I get this from other people now that I talk to people who have gone through similar things, of being kind of an orphan. Hmm. You know, just not having like a firm place to stand, feeling like you don't have a, a home to go back to when you've lost your your faith community. Obviously, you are currently employed in the church world, and so that deconstruction was followed by a reconstruction uh, process. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And I, I imagine that that's also tied into moving from Austin to Amarillo. That's also tied into your relationship with your wife. I mean, tell me about that path forward. Well, it is it is tied into the relationship with my wife, actually. Um, when I was around 24, 25, I met a girl who went to church um, once a month. And so she invited me to go along with her. And, you know, many years later, I ended up marrying her. But she was kind of intriguing enough to get me to go back into the doors of mm -hmm. an organized religion. And so she, she had been raised atheist and like kind of staunchly anti-Christian. And so it's kind of funny that she was going to church, but she had a dog that was like 10 months old and that dog got cancer. And it was like her only friend. She had just moved to town. And so she asked a God that she didn't believe in okay, listen, let's make a deal. Like, if you will keep my dog alive, I will go to church once a month. And so she had already been doing this for like two years, three years when we met. And so she just explained to me, hey, I have to go to church once a month because I made this deal with God. And so um, we <laughs> went to... <laughs> that's a really intriguing conversion story. Well, the I, dog lived to be 17. That's amazing. And he was not a small dog. So he lived like forever in dog years. So there's something something to that. Um, I'm not saying everyone should go around making deals with God, but it is an interesting, interesting conversion story. And she did indeed keep her into the bargain hmm. and go to church once a month for like 17 years. Mm. What did you have to overcome in terms of that that pain or that resistance to you know, the, the religious trauma of your college years. I mean, in order to join her, you know, to, to become a churchgoer with her. Well, what was that like? We had to church hop a little. Um, and she didn't care. She just had to fulfill, like, it was a box to check for her, you know. Um, yeah, she was doing it out of obligation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, that sense of duty is, you know, kind of the driver for, or was the driver for her at that time. But, you know, we church hopped a little and we started to notice some things that we liked. And um, for me to go, I had to sit at the very back pew on the very end of the pew closest to the door mm -hmm. so that I knew I could get out, you know. And that was like, it probably lasted a year that I would be like ready for an escape plan. But I mean, Which is a, a PTSD kind of I mean, I, I guess so. Now looking back on it, I was, I was very afraid for a while. And um, 
we ended up, we liked to do this like fantasy football league. And there was a bar that we met at in Austin to like watch all the TVs Mm -hmm. and like, you know, have the camaraderie of other people. And there was an Episcopal church really close to that bar. So we're like, well, you know what? That'll be really convenient for our Sundays if we just like, when when it's a church Sunday, if we go to that church, then we can just walk down to the bar and it'll be perfect. And so, and also you could park for free at the church if you were going to the church. It okay. made it really easy to park, Even which is a then. problem in Austin. So we, we started going to um, St. David's Episcopal Church right there in the middle of downtown. And um, I was, I found myself very attracted to the liturgy. Like I didn't grow up in kind of a high church liturgical background, um, but all those things were very fascinating to me to, I don't know, there's kind of a pomp and circumstance Mm -hmm. to it, you know, and that kind of drew me in. And then we noticed that the people were like very, I don't know, like accepting, or at the time I might have described it as tolerant. I wouldn't describe it that way now, but, you know, they just were not what I expected. Very um, welcoming, very hospitable. Didn't seem to even blink that we went there together. So it kind of drew me in, and the rest just sort of fell into place. I kind of fell in love with the Book of Common Prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big contributions, I think, of Anglicanism and the Episcopal Church is a branch of Anglicanism that we've made in Christendom is like this Book of Common Prayer, uh, Thomas Cramner wrote it in like 1549 and you still hear pieces of it like all over the place. It's exactly. just in the culture. It is. You know, um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust is from the funeral service or the burial service in the book of common prayer. And, um, pretty much every wedding you go to, no matter what stripe, you're going to hear some words from the snippets book of common and prayer. phrasing. Yeah. So I just kind of fell in love with the poetry of it and started, you know, dabbling with praying every day as a result. And that just sort of snowballed into, I need to be more involved in the church again. When we moved up here, um, we started going to St. Andrews and things just really, I mean, we started going to church more than once a month, for instance. Yeah. Uh, we ended up beyond the, the obligation. That yeah. She well, Michelle got baptized and, um, then we got confirmed and then eventually I was invited to pursue ordination, and um, we got to get married in the church, which was like something that we thought would never happen. Yeah. And then I got ordained in the church in 2018. So it's been a pretty life-changing sort of journey, becoming Episcopalian from kind of deconstructing everything before. And yet still coming into the fulfillment of that call you felt as right. a seventh grader right. to be involved in ministry. Right. And not just not just children's ministry. Right. But, right. You know, something else. And uh, interestingly, that's how I heard that my mother describes me as some sort of minister. And I liked it so much that um, that's what I've put in my, my bio. Some sort some of minister. Some sort of minister. How do you feel about the position you have now and what you're doing now when you look back at it? you know, from the religious fervor you had as a kid. Um, does does it feel like a natural progression? Does it feel like kind of a surprise? I mean, having having this weird journey where you were wanted to be in the ministry, met up against the ceiling, 
got away from it for so many years, finally ended up back up there. Does it feel like natural and organic? Does it feel weird to you? Does it feel um, like unfamiliar? Kind of when I look at the arc of the story, it it feels kind of providential. You know, like okay. in a way it feels, wow, the irony of, you know, for instance, coming out when I moved to Amarillo, which most people can, you know, perceive to be very conservative and, you know, becoming a minister only after coming out, like in, in a way, like some of it, if I'm thinking from like my 17 year old mind, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah. But in another way, it feels very natural. And what I do right now is um, a little strange because it's not, it's not, I don't think it's typical ministry. It's not typical pastoring because I started full time in the middle of the pandemic um, before then, I had been bivocational. I was doing some teaching and preaching, but also uh, working full-time at Boyce Ranch. And we have several ministers at St. Andrews who are like that. We're all ordained deacons. Okay. Um, we have seven right now, which is the most ordained deacons of any Episcopal church like in the United States. Is it really? Yes. We're, we have a huge amount, but we'll drop back down to six when we lose one to the priesthood here in a while. So then we'll be tied. Ugh. So well, won't have that claim can't to, win them all. Claim to fame. Dang that's, that's a pretty biblical model, though. Yeah, seven. You know, the, oh, yeah. The full-time minister is fairly recent. Usually oh, yeah, it's doing this sure. in addition to tent making, you know, or whatever Paul right, did. Right, right. And I, also the having the seven deacons is mm-hmm. uh, sort of acts in there, um, just for those of you who are geeking out about uh, church facts. This is a place to do it. <laughs> so Just the two of us here. <laughs> um, anyway, it's it's... It's odd to start in a pandemic because you don't see people. Tell me about the work that you do then. Um, I mostly move electrons around for Jesus. Okay. Um, I do a lot of live streaming. Um, so I live stream our services. We do not meet in person right now. All right. And we won't do that until um, probably when we get under 15% hospitalization. Okay. So you're looking um, for I can't, a benchmark. I can't really speak yeah. for, the, for the parish but um, it's we're looking for it's lower data. Numbers. It's not like a feeling that everything's yeah. okay now. Yeah, we're just we're kind of looking for it to be um, more accepted that it's safe. Okay. And you know, we have other we have other clergy that we're in contact with around the diocese and around the church in the nation, and just trying to get some parameters that fit. So we're looking at that stuff very closely. But we have not been meeting in person, which means that we needed to be able to live stream the services. We needed to be able to set up small groups on Zoom. Um, We needed to be able to get formation to people, be Mm -hmm. able to, you know, make disciples, but do that through the Internet. Okay. So that, you know, it was something I was doing while I was working from home as a teacher, and, like, the enormity of the task in front of us became very clear to me. And, you know, it just seemed like for such a time as this, like it seemed like the right time to go ahead and, and jump from one career path to the other. Um, somebody at St. Andrews said, hey, what if you did this all the time? You know, because we're really going to need somebody yeah, here for a yeah. while. What if you did this stuff all the time? And I felt like that's, you know, a piece clicking in, um, you know, kind of that, that old all the way back to seventh grade piece kind of clicking in saying, okay, here's an opportunity. Why don't you go, why don't you go try it and see what that's like to be a full-time, some sort of minister. Okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about your perspective on the city. 
um, as someone who grew up here in a very different environment than what you're in now, religiously, culturally, um, relationship-wise, how has your perspective on the city changed experiencing it as an adult versus the Amarillo you knew as a kid? You know, I don't remember ever being super enamored with Amarillo as a kid. I remember really loving getting out of town. I remember, you know, liking going away to college and not having, you know, when I left, everything closed at nine. And so it just felt like very liberating to leave. Um, but living here now, I really, I really like it. I think, you know, there, there are bigger cities, but we have all the amenities of, at least we have most of the amenities mm -hmm. of a bigger city. I mean, we have great music and arts. We have some great, um, you know, craft beer is very big right now in cities. We have great brewers. We have great restaurants, um, just a whole panoply of different um, genres of places to eat uh, that I don't think we had when I was a kid or maybe I wasn't aware of them. And so to me, like, it's great. It's like all of the all of the stuff that I would go do in Austin, I can go do here, but also I'm, you know, living here for much less than it cost me to live in Austin. And I'm, you know, not stuck in traffic half the yeah. day. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been great. You know, she's, she's not here to answer this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, how does your wife feel about Amarillo? Having grown up in a different place, different part of the country, um, then Austin, then coming here as an sure. adult. I mean, what's her perspective? You know, she um, drives every day back and forth to Borger. Okay. And so, so I she think, gets to see yeah, some good panhandle Yeah, she gets to see scenery. a lot of wide, wide open spaces. And I think she enjoys those wide open spaces. Um, you know, she comes from kind of near, I guess, what's the Shenandoah forest? Okay. Or yeah, like, like uh, the Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge Mountains, Mountains area from, of Virginia. You can't so, see as you're driving places no, but other I think, than trees. I think she probably misses the trees, um, but I do think she appreciates the wide open spaces. Um, the wind reminds her of the beach, which is very strange to me. The wind hmm. just reminds me of being very annoyed. But for her, it reminds her of the beach. So she's like, oh, isn't this wonderful? Does it have a refreshing quality? Yeah, then? I guess so. Uh, it does not have that effect on me. Um, but I think... I think she's one who loves adventure enough that she doesn't mind moving. Like, you know, if she were given an opportunity somewhere else, we'd then have to like sit down and really talk about like, are we going to leave this place? Cause I really like it here and would be totally fine. Just, you know, doing the Amarillo thing. And I don't know, it's great here. So has, have you found, have you both found the, the live and let live, kind of environment that you hope to find here? I mean, has that remained consistent or has that um, maybe improved, you know, as as a gay couple working in the church world, living in a very conservative place? Sure. You know, talking about moving to Amarillo when we lived in Austin, um, we, we were concerned that, you know, we might have, we might have some pushback. We might meet some resistance. We might not enjoy it you know we may be in danger even mm -hmm. you know these were all things that went through our heads and then I think we we had to come up to visit for some reason maybe it was looking at houses or something and we went to a local restaurant and they were having some sort of like LGBTQIA like extravaganza in the restaurant and there had to be like 
at least 18 couples that were there. And it was just a, I mean, we just randomly picked a restaurant. Wow. It's not like we intentionally went there and we're like, okay, maybe we're going to be all was right. Was it like Pride Week or something like I that? I don't know just what a- was happening, but like there was a huge gathering and we were like, okay, there's actually a, a lot of LGBT couples here. There's a lot of LGBT individuals here. And what I, what I came to realize when we moved here is we're kind of the big town in kind of a sea of a lot of smaller towns. You know, there's just not a lot immediately around. I mean, you're driving four hours to go to Albuquerque. Um, you can drive to Lubbock, but I don't know why you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think maybe people kind of gravitate to Amarillo. Um, I, I would still describe it as conservative, however. Yeah. You know, but there are pockets around town that are not that way. We touched on it briefly, but tell me a little bit about what it's been like to be working in the church world and and working as a minister, which is obviously a a relational job during a time when you can't do that face-to-face relational stuff. I mean, tell me how that what kind of challenges that has provided for you and and for, you know, all of um St. Andrews. I mean, wh- what have you guys been sure. dealing with? And, you know, I think probably at least the people that I've talked to who are in ministry, regardless of denomination, regardless of the um, particular congregation that they serve, it has just been a time that they were completely unprepared for. Um, I'll say for me, not having people around when I'm used to being in noisy high schools for my whole professional life, like 18 years prior to this year, I've been in these very noisy environments and it's just so quiet and then you're trying to figure out how do you um, bring people, you know, because what we get out of church is not just like going to a service. It, it's the community mm-hmm. and identity and belonging. And so how do you make that happen if you can't really be in the same place, especially in a liturgical church? It's um, participatory. It's yeah, not the just... the church is very yeah, participatory. Yeah, a congregation listening to a sermon. Like, no. there's action happening. Yeah, you know, there's the, the sitting and the standing and the kneeling and people crossing themselves and bowing. And there's all different things that, you know, kind of vary among Episcopalians that are bodily. And then there's, you know, our main service together always involves communion. And that is very incarnational. That's something you really need to be there for. And so how has that worked? Like how how has that worked during I'm not a sure it's service very well via um, Zoom? I mean, <laughs> we're, we we live stream our Eucharistic services, our communion services on Facebook, and we've had to really like talk to people all over the place about like what is the theology of spiritual communion, you know? And I guess the idea is, and I I'm not like the resident theologian mm-hmm. for St. Andrews, so don't you know. Nobody take this too seriously, but like, um, I guess the idea is if you long for communion, it's the same as taking communion. Hmm. And um, I still am not sure that that is sufficient. I think a lot of people really long to be there again at the altar rail together. Um, There's something very, very profound about kneeling at the rail and receiving a wafer or bread that is Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, together with people that you might not necessarily agree with politically, or you might not agree with for many reasons, but you're there together, you know, one body who shares one bread, one cup, like that's profound. And that, I don't know how you replicate that 
in a digital environment. Do you think the physical components, the call and response, the standing and kneeling, do you think some are doing that at home I really along hope with that, you in the service? Yeah, I really hope that some people are doing that at home. Um, I'm mostly behind a computer when we have our services. You don't get to look into so, their homes and see so if they're I'm doing not, it. I'm not doing a lot of it myself. Yeah. And so I, I feel like there's probably a scale. There's probably folks who still stand when, you know, we would normally stand and sit when we would normally sit. I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of people kneeling at home, but maybe. Um, you know, I, I just... I like to think that they are. I like to think that there's still that going on. And, you know, we're, we're live streaming ours to Facebook, and we made that decision solely because it was the only thing I knew how to live stream on mm-hmm. when we started. Okay, that's and legit. And then we, then we created this whole, like, community in the comments thing, and I feel like, you know, there are perhaps other platforms that would be more stable and perhaps better to stream to, but we are at least getting some community in that comment thread. And I feel like, you know, community is part of it. So we've just continued doing that um, to the chagrin of some folks who would really love for us to be off the platform. But I'd, I'd like to close by asking you to just share a little bit about St. Andrews itself and the role that the church plays, because it is maybe, maybe the majority of Amarillo is, is more in the, you know, conservative evangelical or mainline traditions. Um, sure. Uh, St. Andrews, though, is a, is a relatively high-profile church within the community, and I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about the the culture of that church, maybe non-pandemic, um, but but yeah. who it is um, and and what it means to this area. Sure, you know the St. Andrews way, the as we have defined it, is um, love, beauty, inclusivity, and hospitality, and since. 1891, I feel like people have been living into those values. Um, I think beauty sometimes is maybe not something that you hear from every church as a value, but if you walk into the nave at St. Andrews, you'll see (laughs) that it's one of ours. Best church in the city. It's very, very beautiful. Uh, People often ask us if they can get married there Mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, The organ there is a pretty celebrated organ, and there's a whole... Uh, group of people who will come to concerts. Yeah, um, Faso is the friends of the Aeolian Aeolian Skinner. Skinner. Opus. Yeah, I, I've done some. I've done some writing about that group. Uh, it is a stunning and famous um, organ. So, the, and they're you know they they have beautiful concerts. So St. Andrews is very involved in the arts. Um, I know that you know one of the, one of the supporters of NPR. I guess you hear those mm-hmm. ads come through and. You know, I think beauty is part of it. The arts is part of it. We're very involved in those programs around town. But uh, the hospitality is really the thing that I I geek out about with St. Andrews. It's just such a welcoming environment. And again, like, you've got people from all over the political spectrum worshiping together. And I think, I mean, it's so Anglican in a way because Anglicans are always shooting for the middle. Like, we're always trying to be the mm-hmm. middle way it's like we're going back 500 years in the Reformation and we're like trying to hold together like, you know, the conservatism of the Catholic Church and the Protestantism of, you know, the protesting move, you know, the whole movement, right? And we're kind of trying to hold those two pieces together still. And so Anglicanism always sort of shoots for the middle. And I feel like our hospitality is there too. Like it's, 
it's a thing that we may not agree on everything, but we're, we're still going to be there one bread, one cup. Um, part of what I think hospitality looks like in the community is when they built our parish hall, I wasn't part of the church then, so when they built the parish hall, they made sure to build an industrial kitchen hmm. so that they would be able to feed the homeless, because I guess you have to have like certain certifications to mass produce food for people. And so they made sure to build like a full industrial kitchen. And we do have an open breakfast like anyone can come to on Sunday mornings. So we have um, we have a lot of varied visitors. You know, you can have the president of the bank sitting next to someone who just came in from the street asking for money. Hmm. You know, it's just a very, um, I just really like the dynamic of how that plays out. Um, the hospitality angle, the inclusivity. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches with three Amarillo locations, Sansi and I-40, Western and Olson, and downtown across from the ballpark. These franchise locations are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. And right now, you can get a meal there for less than $5. The Little John combo with any side and any drink is just $4.75, and a Slim combo is only $5.75. So grab a quick lunch or dinner at Jimmy John's today. Okay, I'm back with Courtney Jones. Courtney, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight fossils from the Pleistocene epoch, including a woolly mammoth and a whole bunch of stuff that were found here in the Panhandle, which is always fascinating to me. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, the question I've been starting this with over the last few months with my guests is what is one thing that... 2020 revealed to you about local people? I think adaptability. You know, we had the pandemic hit and it was like overnight, half the churches in Amarillo completely changed their format to reach out to their people. You had people start wearing masks. You had restaurants come up with curbside things. Man, my vet like overnight became a curbside like concierge service. And wow. that was awesome. Um, I don't know. It was just kind of... I feel like everybody just adapted so quickly, much more quickly than I would have anticipated. And, you know, we're, we're kind of a pioneer spirit people, like a rugged, there's a rugged individualism to the panhandle. And I think that we kind of saw a little bit of the shadow side of that mm -hmm. um, when the pandemic started, because there were, you know, some folks who didn't necessarily want to do the, the things that other people were doing to stay safe. But um, overall, I feel like the vast majority of people just kind of like jumped on board and innovated and adapted to the process. You can see that even with the um, vaccination thing yeah. that we're doing now. Man, like we heard we got doses and then the city was so good about getting them distributed. I, I heard that we ran out like we vaccinated so many people that we ran out. We had parishioners like calling each other and like picking each other up and taking each other down to the civic center. And I just felt like we just adapted so quickly up here. And honestly, I feel like our city government should get some real props for yeah. how well they handled that um, vaccination, that first round of vaccinations. I mean, it was just so fast. That 
creative problem solving is is something that's kind of built in to the culture here. Yeah. And and it, yeah, it, it may tie back to that's how you make it, you know, in 1885. Yeah, I feel in a like place that, like this. Like that making do thing, you know, like people learned to make do on mm-hmm. the plains and they I feel like that you really saw it in in the pandemic. People just very quickly adapted to what was going on. What does this area have too much of? Um, you know how Sometimes it looks like it's going to rain mm-hmm. and you get really excited because there's not a lot of rain here. And then it just like barely sprinkles, but somehow as it's sprinkling, it picks up like all this dust from the air. And then that is what is on your car. So like a mud rain. Yeah. Um, I would say that even once a year of mud rain would be too much, but I feel like we do that maybe 10 times a year. I think you're right. And I don't know the meteorological term. I don't know what that There's is. There's probably one other than mud rain, but... No, it's probably not mud rain, but um, I wish we didn't have whatever that is. Okay. We have too much of that. That's a unique answer. I've not heard <laughs> that one before, but I can completely identify with that. What does this area not have enough of? Water, trees. You know, when people go on vacation from Amarillo, I feel like they go to the mountains to see trees, mm-hmm. and they go to the beach or a lake to see water. And those are things that, you know, I kind of miss about Austin, particularly being able to take my dog to go swim, Mm -hmm. you know, in the afternoons was something I could do there. And I have not ever done here in an afternoon with the dog, poor guy. But, um, you know, and to some extent, I'd love it if we had more walkable spaces, more bikeable spaces. Um, we just, I don't think we have enough of those. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? So when I was going to school for ministry, my mentor referred to Amarillo. Now, he was not from Amarillo and has never lived in Amarillo, but he referred to it as the world's longest truck stop. (laughs) And I feel like people describe it that way, and that's horrible because Mm -hmm. there's so much more to the city than that. I do realize that I-40 runs through the middle, and that's like a big thing. A lot of people have been through here and not to here. But when people ask me about Amarillo, what I tell them is that per capita, we have more refugees than like any city in Texas. And per capita, we give more dollars to charity than any city in Texas. Mm -hmm. So we're a very welcoming, generous city. And I think that um, that goes unnoticed sometimes. So that's, that's what I think people need to know. It's just we're welcoming, generous. And, you know, there's a lot of places to stop for gas if you're on your way to somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. I, uh, I like that. Um, <laughs> what, what's your favorite local coffee shop? You know, I am allergic to coffee. Really? And no Like one, to the bean or? No, I'm allergic to like some oil in the bean, huh. not the caffeine. I'm totally addicted to caffeine. And so I make probably the best tea latte that can be made. So I don't frequent a lot of coffee shops, but I have been like just for the ambiance to the um, downtown palace. Mm-hmm. And I really like the aesthetics of that one. How did you find out that you were allergic to coffee? Like, you was know, it, is it an immediate response when you drink it? Or? Yeah. Well, so when I was a kid, I got tested for like for allergies. Know, allergy yeah. All the like, pricks on yeah, your like back and stuff. Yeah, like a bajillion little, like, like a grid of shots. And the one that was like the most, I don't know what the measurement is. I suppose they like flare up or something. Produces the one that the was most the worst. Histamines. Yeah. The one that ranked the highest was like 
catfish and coffee. And so, I mean, those are pretty easy things to avoid, I guess, if you know you're allergic to them. I I do occasionally have coffee and I will cough like for the whole rest of the day and get like sores in and around my mouth. And, um, you know, that might be fine occasionally, but not during a pandemic. Like it's really frowned upon to walk around coughing all day. So I've never heard of that allergy. Yeah, it's not cool. It's not cool. But, you know, honestly, if you kind of grow up without drinking coffee, you don't miss it. People always say, oh, I feel so bad for you that you don't drink coffee. But it's like, like being allergic to cocaine. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Whatever. And I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I don't know what I'm missing, I guess. What's the most underrated aspect of living here? You know, I think um, I kind of touched on this before, but we have most of the amenities of a big city, but without the traffic and with a great cost of living compared to yeah. those cities. And so, you know, the pan- pandemic has kind of factored into this. I don't know what it's going to look like, like how many businesses have had to close Mm -hmm. or whatnot, but I really do feel like most of the things that I would normally go do um, living in Austin are things I can go do here when they're open, of course, like not right now, but I feel like we have most of the amenities, but um, very few of the um, very annoying things about living in a big city. When was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch? Speaking of the uh, eternal truck stop of Amarillo. And- you know, and also speaking of the pandemic, we got a little stir crazy one day, um, staying home and decided that we were going to go, it was maybe late spring, early summer. All right. And we went out there and there were just like a ton of people out there. It always shocks me. All times of the day. Yeah. And I used to drive by all the time coming in from Boys Ranch. I mean, there are always people at Cadillac Ranch. It could be snowing. I mean, the wind can be blowing 70 miles per hour. And you'll see people like fighting the wind to go back to their car. And I'm not exactly sure like what the big appeal is, but maybe that's from growing up here. I'm like, okay, it's Cadillac Ranch, but you know, people are very attracted to that. It's a bucket list destination. I mean, like all the time people are there. Hmm. What's your favorite local restaurant? Okay. Pre-pandemic, probably anywhere with an outdoor patio Mm -hmm. to just like sit and enjoy outside when the weather is favorable to do that. What we eat the most right now is probably Indian Oven, uh, Ichiban, and Brent's Cafe. Okay. And we do that because they've been just super great about having takeout, each of those places. They all have really good customer service around that. And, um, man, any of them will modify your meals for you if you've got dietary stuff, especially Brent's. Like, they're fabulous about if you've got any kind of dietary restrictions, they're going to make sure that you get taken care of. So, um that that's what we're eating the most lately. Sometimes I feel like picking a favorite restaurant in Amarillo is like, you know, asking someone to pick their favorite child because yeah. we have so many good yeah. restaurants. A lot of people uh, have mentioned Indian Oven. Uh, I think that's a pretty common one. Brent's hasn't gotten a lot of love on this podcast, and it really is. It's it's a fantastic locally owned restaurant. Right. Um, I mean, the kind of farm to table element. Yeah, exactly. It's got a little bit of a Santa Fe style yeah. in some of its dishes. Mm-hmm. Ambiance is good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, I like going in there or at least pre pandemic, I liked going in there cause I always knew someone, mm-hmm. you know, they call themselves the community's table. Yeah. And I felt like I always knew somebody who was in there. So I was always going to have a good conversation. Really good so. place for brunch also. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Courtney, that concludes my eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Okay. So I'm one of these elder millennial slash younger Gen X people. 
And um, I think there's a lot of us that, for whatever reason, no longer belong to a faith community. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there is such an opportunity for identity and community and belonging, being part of a faith community, that um, that's, that's what I would endorse. And so, you know, for a lot of reasons, people my age have walked away from faith communities. It may be, you know, they... Um, like when I was a kid, we had a, a, a class one time in our Sunday school that was all about debunking science. And so I meet a lot of people having taught science that are like, well, how can you be a person of faith and a person of science? And like, they're not, you know, people find those to be mutually exclusive. So people have walked away because of that. And they've walked away because maybe they just, the beliefs that they had as a kid don't fit anymore. And they've walked away perhaps because they've been pushed away by their own faith community and I would encourage people to um, look back into that, look back into the idea of belonging to a faith community, um, specifically the open and affirming congregations of the Texas Panhandle. That's who I'd like to endorse. Um, they are, and this is in alphabetical order. I had to write it down so I'd make sure I didn't forget somebody. The Amarillo Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, uh, First Christian of Canyon, First Presbyterian of Canyon, the Metropolitan Community Church of Amarillo, St. Andrew's Episcopal, so this is a shameless plug because that is um, where I'm at, that's my parish, uh, St. Luke Presbyterian, St. Peter's Episcopal, the Unity Spiritual Center. And so that, that's what I would endorse for the open and affirming congregations of the Texas Panhandle. I feel like, you know, it's made a huge difference in my life, mm -hmm. um, being a member and then being clergy at St. Andrew's. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who have become that group of um, nun, uh, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. There's not just an influx of N-U-N nuns, but the N-O-N-E nuns. Um, maybe give it another try. Uh, and those are all really safe spaces where if you want to give a faith community a second chance, you can, you can do that. Yeah, a lot of those things that people have walked away from or that have pushed them away are not universally present no. In every church, and so no. you're you're not walking back into that potential minefield. You know there are places that are much much sure. more safe, I guess. And or, you know now is a great time to try those out because so many churches are live streaming, and so you can actually get online and check out what you're walking into before you ever have to visit. And so, I mean, to use a scientific analogy. It sort of like lowers the activation energy of being able to go to church. You know, the hardest part of going to the gym, to me, well, pre-pandemic when I actually went to the gym, but like the hardest part of going to the gym is like putting on my workout clothes and actually leaving the house. Yeah. And so to me, that's something that this time, uh, it's a gift in this time where everybody has started kind of live streaming because there is like some anxiety about just walking into a church um, that you've never seen before and you never really visited before, but now you can sort of walk in digitally in your pajamas, look around, see what the service actually looks like, and then experiment with it and see what you like, and then go, you know, kind of insert yourself into the community when everybody's back in person and get a fresh start. So I would endorse that fresh start and any of the um, OAC, Open and Affirming Congregations. Okay. Courtney Jones, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Courtney for the original interview. Just to put our conversation into some context, we recorded it on January 6th, 2021, last Wednesday, the day the U.S. Capitol was attacked by protesters. All that stuff started happening right before we began recording, and to be real honest, we wondered if we ought to postpone the interview and stay glued to the TV instead. As you know, it was a bewildering and scary afternoon. That that doesn't really have any bearing on our conversation, other than the fact that it probably impacted our mood as we talked. So I figured you should know. That's the story. Anyway, I'm grateful for Courtney's example and leadership. I want to say thanks to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, to Bivens Point, and to Amarillo's Jimmy John's locations for sponsoring this show. And thank you for listening. This podcast exists every week because of listeners like you, and especially because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamorello. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Criselda, Patrick Burns, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 179. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.